the Word of God. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us soft hearts. Draw us closer to you so that we can see you and know you more clearly and thereby be built up and become more like your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. We are in our second sermon in the book of Galatians. In the last sermon, I said that the letter to the churches in Galatia was a rescue mission from God where our good, uh, good shepherd sent the Apostle Paul through the letter to keep the saints there in Galatia from being deceived. Jewish men called Judaizers had come into the churches there in Galatia and they were teaching a false gospel. They were telling the saints there that in order to be saved, they yes, they must put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Messiah and receive circumcision according to the law of Moses. And as the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 5.3, if you receive circumcision, you are obligated to perform the whole law. And so the gospel according to the Judaizers is not faith alone in Christ alone, but faith in Christ plus works of the law. Now, sadly, the saints there in Galatia have adopted this damning false gospel. So Jesus, as the good shepherd, out of love and jealousy for his blood-bought people, sends the apostle Paul to rebuke the Galatian Christians. The harsh posture that the Apostle Paul takes is evident by the fact that there is no giving of thanks for the saints there in Galatia. Now, there's still the typical greeting of grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we look at 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and even 1 Corinthians, after the greeting of grace and peace, the Apostle Paul thanks God for them. There is no such giving of thanks for the Galatian saints by the Apostle Paul. In verse 6, he immediately rebukes them. And this tells us that the error that the Galatian churches are making is severe. Now there's two things I want us to look at from verse 6. The first is that God called the saints there in Galatia in the grace of Christ... And the second is that in turning to a different gospel, they have deserted God Himself. 
So what does the Apostle Paul mean when he says that God called the Galatians in the grace of Christ? Well, first uh, let's look at what grace is in the Bible. In the Old and New Testament both, it means to have favor and kindness given to one who is not deserving or worthy of it. And so if it is not deserved, what is it? It is a gift. And so grace does not originate in the recipient in any way, but in the one who extends it. Now the grace that God extended toward the saints there in Galatia started in the very call of the gospel itself. We must understand that there is no obligation on God's part to make the gospel known to any sinner. God is obligated to punish sinners for their sin, not show them goodness and kindness. If I have broken multiple Tennessee state laws, I would never do that. The state of Tennessee is not obligated to offer me a way of avoiding going to jail. The moment we obligate God to get the gospel to any sinner anywhere, then our salvation no longer originates in God, but in us. If the Lord is obligated to make the gospel known, then every sinner that dies without hearing the gospel can rightly charge God with an act of injustice. No one who has done wrong can claim that they have been wrong themselves by not having favor shown to them as a result of their sin. And so if you are not yet a Christian, but you have heard the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, know that God has already been gracious towards you. Many people throughout history have died without ever hearing the gospel. Now, there are many things that you might wish that God had offered to you or given to you in this life. But if you have heard the gospel, God has offered you his very best. He has offered his son to you. Do not take this offer for granted. Now, you may have much life left to live, but God may harden your heart if you continually put off the free offer of the gospel of Christ. Now, God's grace does not end there regarding the Christians in Galatia. Paul calls the recipients of the letter Adelphos, brothers, in verse 11. And so at this point, we can say that they had savingly received the gospel, or else Paul would not have addressed them as brothers. Scripture, however, teaches us that we do not have the ability to respond to the gospel in true faith apart from God's help. Salvation is offered to us through the gospel, but the gospel call comes to us in the form of a command. Acts 17.30 tells us that God commands or directs us to repent and believe the gospel. Jesus himself gave the command in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. Yes. Yes. Now folks, here's the thing. Anytime God gives a command... It is synonymous with law. The command to repent and believe the gospel is law. And so God holds his son out to it, holds his son out to us, and he commands us to take him as Savior and Lord by faith. But look at what God tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. 
for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And all unbelievers are in the flesh. And so how does an unbeliever who is in the flesh, who does not submit to any of the commands of God because they cannot repent and believe the gospel? The answer is by the undeserved kindness and favor of God. By grace. God God the Holy Spirit removes the sinner's heart that is hardened toward God and gives them a new heart. He regenerates the unbeliever. And so God gives the sinner a new heart and with that new heart, the sinner of their own volition responds to the gospel in true repentance and faith. Now, without that new heart, no sinner will savingly respond to the gospel. And when God gives a sinner a new heart, it is completely an act of God's grace. Remember, grace originates in the giver, not the recipient, or else it is not grace. And so not only was it the grace of God that sent the gospel to the saints in Galatia. It was the grace of God that brought about their true repentance and faith. But God's grace does not end there regarding salvation. The very nature of the salvation that God provides in His Son is all the grace of God as well. Not only does Jesus die on the cross and wash away every single sin that His people have or ever will commit... His perfect obedience to the law of God is fully attributed to every believer. And so the believer doesn't get the punishment they deserve, but instead they receive what they are not worthy of, which is the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And so there is not one aspect of our salvation that does not involve the undeserved kindness of God. Our salvation is all the grace of God. And it was this gospel of grace that the Galatian saints were forsaking. They were in the process of what we would call apostatizing. This brings us to the second aspect that I want us to see in verse 6. The saints there in Galatia were not just abandoning a doctrine. They were abandoning God himself. If the gospel that Paul preached to the saints in Galatia is from God and not Paul, then to reject Paul's gospel is ultimately to reject God, not the Apostle Paul. And this is essentially what Jesus uh, said to the 70 disciples in Luke 10, 16, before he sent them out to proclaim the gospel. He said, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. This is why as a church, we consistently pray for those who attend our church that have not yet turned to Christ. We are grateful to God for every unbeliever who attends our services. But to keep hearing the word of God and to reject it or I'm just going to put it aside for now. I'm going to wait until later is according to Jesus to reject the Lord Himself. Now the Lord's patience and kindness is long-suffering towards sinners, but it will not last forever. 
Now, not only this, as Paul states or tells us in verse 7, there is no other gospel. And that means regardless of how unpopular it is to our godless culture, there is only one way to be saved and enter into a covenant fellowship with God. It is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Acts 4.12 it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so for the saints there in Galatia to turn to a false gospel is to abandon their covenant relationship with Yahweh. They are leaving the Lord. And to walk away from the one true God is to forsake life and embrace death. And this is why Paul is so concerned with the situation among the churches there in Galatia. This is why Jesus sends Paul on a rescue mission to keep the Galatian saints from fully apostatizing. Now, before we become too harsh ourselves toward the Galatian saints, we need to realize that we are not unsusceptible ourselves to this kind of error. The believers in Galatia had received the true gospel from the Apostle Paul himself and had even seen miracles. And so we might ask ourselves, well, how did it happen? How did true believers start to fall for a false gospel? Well, John Stott, a British Anglican theologian, tells us that the church's greatest troublemakers now as then are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. The Judaizers were Jewish men who were found within the church. In Philip Ryken's commentary on Galatians, he says they were probably baptized members of the church. Now folks, look, they would have professed that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, They would have... uh, taught that uh, Jesus shed his blood and died for our sins and was resurrected from the dead physically three days later. They would have taught repentance and faith in Jesus. They would have used the same terms and the same phrases that the Apostle Paul would have used in his teaching. And this is how they got their foot in the door to introduce a false gospel. But instead of taking away from the gospel, they added to it. Now we need to realize that The Apostle Paul is the Apostle to the Gentiles. The Galatian saints there were mostly Gentiles. And so these Jewish believers could have come in and said, Look, we've been acquainted with the Scriptures our whole lives. I mean, look, Paul is a great teacher. He isn't all wrong. But if you really want to be saved, you must be circumcised according to the law of God. Remember, the churches in Galatia didn't have a complete New Testament and they didn't have Calvin's Institutes on the Christian religion either. All right, The Old Testament was the early church's Bible. And so it was true. The Judaizers had far more knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures than the Gentile Christians in Galatia did. And so the Judaizers would have used this to their advantage to try and manipulate the Galatian saints. So what happened? The letter to the, uh, to the Galatians is what happened. Now you might say, well, Dave, we do have the New Testament. And we do have Calvin's Institutes. So we're good. Well, in the early 1700s, the Reformed Church in Scotland, 
that had the entire Bible, so they had the New Testament, they had Calvin's Institutes, and they had the Westminster Confession of Faith, had pastors who got the gospel wrong. It's called the Marrow Controversy. Now, without getting into too much detail, there were elders who were teaching that before an unbeliever could even be offered the gospel, they had to repent of their sins. They had to show real evidence in their, li in their life that they had actually repented of their sins and were producing the true spiritual fruit of repentance. If an unbeliever did not manifest this in their life, they were not to be evangelized with the gospel. And so these reformed pastors who believed the Bible and held to the entire Westminster Confession of Faith, which does teach salvation by faith alone apart from works, became legalists. They were requiring unbelievers to obey the law of God before they could receive the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we know, based off the scriptures that we read in Romans 8, that no unbeliever can truly obey the law of God until they are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And so this was a tremendous theological error that these Reformed pastors were making. They were propagating a warped gospel. And not only that, they accused anyone who opposed them of being antinomians. An antinomian is someone who teaches that Christians don't need to obey the law of God after they have been saved. Now, we know better than that. We ought to know better. All right, obedience to the law of God is not how we get saved, but it is the fruit of those who have legitimately been saved by the grace of God. Now, you might say, Dave, okay, fine. That, that was over 300 years ago. That doesn't happen today. Well, what about the new woke gospel? Anthony Bradley is a reformed pastor who has a Master's of Divinity from Covenant College and a Ph.D. from Westminster Theological Seminary. His theological academic pedigree is very impressive. And he is currently the theologian in residence at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Now, on December 22nd, 2017, Dr. Bradley stated that evangelicals have never had the gospel ever. He then asks the question, when will evangelicals embrace the gospel for the first time ever? Now, folks, Dr. Bradley affirms the full inspiration and infallibility of Scripture. He believes in the one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He believes Jesus is fully man and fully God. He believes Jesus lived a perfect life and died on the cross to atone for sin. He believes Jesus was resurrected from the grave three days later. He believes Jesus is the Son of God who will one day return and judge the earth. He believes Jesus is the eternal King who will rule over the new creation. But, Dr. Bradley does not believe that our church believes, teaches, or preaches the true gospel found in the scriptures. Dr. Bradley holds to what he calls cosmic redemptive Christianity, which he contrasts with Great Commission Christianity. 
Now let me quote Dr. Bradley on his understanding of the gospel. CRC, Cosmic Redemptive Christianity, knows that all injustices around the world and in the church, that's an important distinction, are gospel issues because the gospel at its core is about God calling his people to himself, amen, and the liberation of creation. Claiming dominion over injustice is not therefore an implication of the gospel. Listen to this. It is a fundamental part of the gospel, according to Dr. Bradley. And so according to him, the gospel is not repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and you will be saved. The gospel is, yes, repent and trust in Jesus and fight social injustices and instill social reconciliation and and equity and you will be saved. So until all social injustices inside and outside of the church in this cursed, fallen world are reconciled and made right, the gospel will never accomplish its purposes. And so the gospel is apparently dependent on the church getting the secular, God-hating state to pass and enforce laws that accord with the laws of God. So apparently here in America, the success of the gospel is in the hands of the House of Representatives and the Senate. Okay, God help us if that was true. That is not the gospel. That will never be the gospel. The the success of the gospel can never be equated with societal improvement. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, folks, the church in China is spreading like a wildfire. But there is no hint of the Chinese government implementing justice in China according to the law of God. Now this false gospel is coming from a man trained in one of the top reformed seminaries in the world who is currently the theologian in residence at a reformed Presbyterian church. And so what these examples show us is that we can never let our guard down regarding the gospel. Now these are not the only examples of the gospel being warped and they will not be the last. Now, Paul, <clears throat> Paul was surprised that the Christians in Galatia had so quickly forsaken the true gospel. He was not surprised at all that the gospel had been attacked. After the fall in the garden, from the time God promised the coming Savior, Satan has done everything to thwart the gospel. He knew that a Savior was going to be born, and so when we read the Old Testament all the way throughout... We see Satan doing everything he can to get the physical line that the Savior would come from destroyed. Right? If you wipe out the nation of Israel, including Judah, the Savior will never be born. Now after that plan failed and Jesus was born, uh, Satan tried to have Herod kill him. And after that plan failed too, Satan tempted Jesus to try to get him to sin to disqualify him as the sacrifice and of course the Savior. Now, we all know that that plan also failed. And so once Jesus accomplished redemption on the cross and was resurrected, the only option that Satan had left was to distort the gospel. 
Since he failed in destroying the Savior, he is now trying to destroy the Savior's gospel. And so for us to let our guard down regarding the gospel is to believe that Satan has gone on permanent vacation and will never attack the gospel again. All right, we know that that is not true. He will never stop trying to destroy the gospel by distorting it through men within the church. And so until the Lord returns, we will always have to keep our guard up and make sure that we ourselves do not fall for a false gospel. Folks, it is not just a coincidence that the book of Galatians made it into Holy Scripture where the church throughout history would be warned of a false gospel. All right, and the book of Galatians is not the only book in the New Testament either that sets forth the difference between a true and false gospel. And so the Lord himself is telling us the defense of the gospel will be a part of the church's life until Jesus returns. And these examples above show us that being reformed does not make us invincible to a false gospel. This is why Charles Spurgeon said that true discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong, but between right and almost right. And so we, need, we not only need to read our Bibles, we need to understand the Scriptures. It is not just the pastor's job to know and understand the Bible. He feeds us so we can discern and defend the faith as well. Now, I think most of us, maybe even all of us, probably have Roman Catholic family members, friends, or co-workers. Now, they hold to and propagate a false gospel, and then without getting into all the details, they hold to a faith plus works salvation. Now, they are not our enemies. They are not. They are fellow image bearers, and we should desire to see them saved. But one of their favorite group of texts to go to to defend their understanding of salvation is found in James chapter 2, 21 through 24. I'm going to read them. It says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So here's the question. Are you prepared to explain and defend the true gospel if they confront you with those scriptures? We ought to. And if we are honest with ourselves, even if we do know that the gospel teaches a salvation by faith alone apart from works, we struggle to apply that gospel in our lives. Now, what do I mean by that? I think most of us still struggle with believing that God's love for us is based on our faithfulness to Him instead of the finished work of Christ. We think God's love for us increases and decreases with the increase and decrease of our obedience to His Word. God's love for His people is based off of the finished work of Christ, the gospel, 
not our own imperfect works of righteousness. And so for the true Christian, no sin that we commit can or ever will cause God's love for us to decrease not even one infinitesimal bit. And likewise, our obedience to Him does not and never will cause His love for us to increase. And so properly applying the gospel in our lives will help us to grasp the unconditional love that God has for His people, which will cause us to love God more and more. And I believe this in turn will make the gospel even more precious to us. And so we will defend and protect it all the more fervently. Now, before we move on in the text, I want to address a possible question that someone might have. If these Christians in Galatia are adopting a false gospel, and as Paul says, deserting God himself in the process, are they in danger of losing their salvation? The answer is no. We have already discussed that the Galatian Christians had certain vulnerabilities because they were part of the early church when the Christian faith was still being worked out. Remember, this is a rescue mission. Goats don't get rescued, sheep do. Goats need to get saved. The true believers who were, eter- who were eternally sealed in Christ, eternally sealed in Christ, upon receiving and hearing this letter that was sent to them, would have heeded the true word of God and rejected the false gospel being propagated by the Judaizers. In John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And the voice of Christ is heard in the word of God. And so those who would continue to follow the Judaizers would reveal themselves to be goats, not sheep. So instead of following the voice of the good shepherd, they would follow the voice of man. Now what this tells us is that God uses means to keep his people. And that's what the letter to the Galatians was. Again, I I had referenced this in the previous sermon on the book of Galatians. Our doctrine of election and our strong biblical view of God's sovereignty does not mean that we sit on a log when heresy comes into the church. God equips his church and he expects us to deal with heresy, especially a false gospel. Now this ought to be good news for us because it, mean, it means instead of just being spectators in the, uh, in the Christian faith, we are to be consistently engaged in it. I would rather be on the field than in the stands. Amen? Now in verses 8 and 9, there is one of, if not the most severe curse found in the Word of God. Let's read these verses again. It says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The word accursed in the Greek is the word anathema. 
And what it does is it carries the idea from the Old Testament of something being devoted to God to be utterly destroyed or annihilated. Remember, the city of Jericho was devoted to God for destruction. Nothing was to be left alive in that city, man or beast, and then it was burned to the ground. This is the sentiment being communicated towards those who teach, preach, or propagate a gospel contrary to the one that Paul has already proclaimed. Men as evil as Stalin or Hitler who are responsible for the death of countless millions of people could not have a stronger curse pronounced against them than anathema. Folks, here's the thing. Everything that God has planned to do for His glory from eternity past is grounded in the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, it says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, speaking of Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. So, yes, the, the gospel of Christ is the only way a sinner can get saved. However, the gospel is not just about sinners being saved. The gospel is ultimately about the glory of God, not just the salvation of sinners. And folks, I think it is very easy for us to develop a narrow, man-centered view of the gospel. God created image bearers to bring glory to His name, and the gospel is how God restores sinners back to full image bearers so that they can carry out their created purpose, which is to bring glory to God. And so a false gospel is ultimately an attack on God's glory, not just a threat to sinners being saved from the wrath of God. Now something else that I want us to notice from these verses is that it's not the messengers who give credibility to the gospel. Paul, an apostle of Christ, made an apostle by Christ to preach the gospel of Christ tells us that even if he preaches a different gospel than the one that he himself proclaimed, he is to be devoted to destruction. Romans 1.16 tells us that the gospel, okay, the true gospel, is the power of God, not man, to save sinners. The Apostle Paul had no confidence in himself, even as an apostle to have any ability or power whatsoever to aid or influence a sinner to come to Christ. Listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The gospel is its own credibility. 
The gospel all on its own is the power of God to save sinners. All right, let's let's finally look at, at verse 10. <clears throat> it says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, the Judaizers had accused Paul of being a man-pleaser. After all, if you don't have to obey the law of God to be saved, you're on easy street, right? Now, we know that that is not the case with the Apostle Paul. His, his epistles clearly teach that if you are saved by grace, you will pursue holiness. Now, in the following verses, after verse 10, Paul gives a lengthy defense of his apostolic legitimacy and the gospel that he has been preaching. Now, we're not going to get into those right now. But what I do want us to grasp from, from this verse is that ultimately a false gospel will take glory from God and give it to man. You cannot add more grace to grace. How can you add unmerited favor to unmerited favor? If the gospel is all of God's grace, which we have already discussed then the only thing that can be added to it is merit-based. It will give credit to man in some form or fashion, which is why Paul says in preaching the gospel, he is serving God and not man. And folks, look, if our salvation is dependent on us in any way at all, that is not good news. That's bad news. But if our salvation is dependent on God alone who is mighty to save, that is good news. It is the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Father, we we ask you not to take the gospel for granted. Father, give us wisdom and discernment. And Father, I pray that the gospel would become more precious to us and that our love for you, for your goodness and grace to us would grow and that we would be made more like your son. We ask all of this in his name. Amen.